By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Thank you. Um, usually I start a sermon with an uh, uh, amusing anecdote or a well-chosen illustration, but I'm not going to do that today. Now I'm going to go straight in, Hebrews 9, uh, verses 1 to 10, three sections for you today. Uh, firstly, we're going to look at context. Context is always super important. I hope you all realise that. If you take God's word out of context, you can make it say whatever you want. So I want to make sure we've got the context right. Secondly, we're going to look at that detail. There's lovely lots of detail there. We've got seven verses of detail in Hebrews 9, 1 to 10, and we've got another three, four, five chapters of it in Exodus, looking at the tabernacle, and another chapter in Leviticus 16, looking at the Day of Atonement. You've got lots of lovely detail coming, so I hope you've brought your slippers and your cocoa. We could be here some time. So that's context, detail, and then thirdly, we're going to get stuck into a bit of application. 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 What is God saying to you today? This isn't just an academic lecture about how the tabernacle was set up. This has got something to say to you. And I mean you, not the person sitting next to you. You, it's got something to say to you today and to me today. So, context, detail, application. So, cracking straight on, let's get into the detail. And firstly, I want to give you the big picture detail. God's big narrative. Where does the tabernacle and this transition between the tabernacle and the new covenant worship, where does that fit in in God's big picture? And uh, to help me, I'm going to use some rather excellent illustrations from this book. (laughs) Six great chapters and one written by me. And uh, we're going to look at uh, chapter six here through four illustrations. Uh, A chapter called It Is Finished, uh, written by Nick, and the uh, uh, diagrams were, came from Nick too. Uh, there's not many left, 
If you want one, please pick one up at the end of the service. Uh, they're there. So, <coughs> God's big picture. That's where we're going. So, um, back in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the Genesis story. Everyone with me so far? And he created man and woman, Adam and Eve, humanity, humankind. I sometimes make the mistake of saying mankind. If I say mankind, I mean humankind, all of us. And he put humankind in the Garden of Eden, a sacred space. And Nick in the book defines a sacred space as a place where God and humanity dwell together. There's a union a coming together, a relationship between God and humanity. You'll see in that diagram that God's space is overlapping with human space. Can you see that? The heavenly meets the earthly, the spiritual meets the physical, and God and his creation, the creator and his creation, can live together in unity and harmony. It was paradise, as Rob Farnden tells us in chapter one of that book you really ought to get. It was paradise. God and humanity living together in harmony. And we have in the Genesis uh, account, uh, it, it's written in language we can understand, but it says God came and walked and talked with humans in the garden. Eden, the sacred space. It was great. It was brilliant. But then, click, something rather horrible happened. And uh, Adam and Eve decided they wanted to be God. <coughs> and uh, something happened in Genesis chapter 3. It's called the fall. Sin entered. Click. Can you move the... Yes, there we go. Um, and there was separation. You see, a holy, just, sinless God cannot be with unholy, imperfect, sinful people. And there's this separation, God's space, humanity's space, heavenly, earthly, spiritual, physical. There had to be a separation because if God had dwelt with humans, humans would have been destroyed. It was for our safety, really. And God separated himself from us. Very sad. And in the Garden of Eden narrative, we have this picture of Adam and Eve being thrown out of the garden, thrown out of the sacred space, and these two cherubim, I think it was two, uh, cherubim were put guarding the gate with great flashing swords. God was saying, no entry. Big sign went up, sinners, not welcome here. And the cherubim with their flashing swords, great symbolic symbol of that. No entry. God and humanity had to separate. It was a very sad state of affairs. You know, that could have been the end. That could have been the end of all humanity. But God is a bigger than that. Our God is a loving God and a compassionate God. And he had a plan. And that plan centred on one man called Abraham. And we've been looking at the Abraham story over the summer, haven't we? You think these things are just random, but we do think about it. Um, and he had a plan for Abraham and his descendants. You remember all that? And God came to Abraham. He said he'd chosen Abraham. His descendants were going to be more numerous than all the stars in the skies. And a great nation was born, the nation of Israel, that had 300 years in slavery. And then along came Moses and brought the nation out of slavery. And as part of the law given to Moses, God told Moses a tabernacle, click, 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 and the tabernacle created this sacred space, just a tiny, tiny, tiny little sacred space in this tent called the tabernacle, and there, uh, tabernacle later, the temple built under Solomon, and there in that sacred space, this most holy place, one man, once a year, could go into the presence of the living God. It's like a sign that God hasn't given up on humanity yet. 
There was a way that God and man could dwell together, always through sacrifice, following rites and rituals and all those rules of the Old Covenant. But there was a tabernacle. And tabernacle worship was set up. And it was set up until the time of Christ. And then we come to the New Covenant. Click. And uh, we have something far better in Christ. You know, um, I, I, you know I, I plagiarise other people's sermons quite a lot. And I was listening to a sermon that Jason preached on this in Grimsby. And he had a, a four-letter acronym to talk about the difference between the Old and the New Covenant. Four-letter acronym. So it's RICH, R-I-C-H. Everyone with me? R-I-C-H. Uh, the New Covenant is about a relationship, not a religion. The New Covenant is internal. The Old Covenant is largely external, as you will see as we go through chapter 9. The New Covenant is about being connected with God. The Old Covenant constantly reminds us, reminds us we're disconnected from God. And the New Covenant gives us a hope, a real and living hope. The Old Covenant tells us why we really should have no hope at all. Fabulous what we've got in the New Covenant. And in the New Covenant, worshippers can come to God in spirit and truth. They don't need to go to a tabernacle or a temple. I mean, I think Jesus expressed this most clearly himself in John chapter 4. You remember he was talking to the Samaritan woman? And the Samaritan woman tries to distract the argument by saying, we Samaritans worship on this mountain. Anyone remember the name of the mountain? I want to say Moriah, but I think that's... Lord of the Rings. Anyway, um, the Samaritans had a, a, a holy, holy mountain. Gerus, something? Anyway, um, a holy mountain. Someone Google it for me. The Samaritans had a holy mountain. You Jews worship on, in the temple, on the temple mount, which is right, she says. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus say, anybody? The time is coming and has now come that true worshippers will worship in spirit and in truth. It won't matter if you're on that mountain or that mountain. You can worship anywhere, anytime. Any place, anytime, anywhere. We can be martini men and women in prayer and worship. Wonderful. Truly, friends, wonderful. You should be smiling. Think of what we've got in Christ. We don't need to go to a tabernacle. We don't need to sacrifice lambs. We don't have one man once a year who can go in just for a moment with God. We can go in any time, anywhere, any place to speak to our God. How wonderful is that? You should be leaping up and down. You know, I've been waking up a lot recently in the middle of the night, and I know when I pray that God's not knocked off in spirit and in truth and through the work of Christ. I can go to him any time. And he's ready to listen to me. Fabulous, friends. It's fabulous. That's what we've got in the new covenant. And uh, God's big narrative, sorry, I'm getting carried away already. God's big narrative isn't finished yet. Because there's one more image, click. <clears throat> when Jesus returns, there'll be the resurrection of the dead. All things will be made new. There'll be a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. And what are we told? This sacred space is the whole earth. And we're told in Revelation 21.13, look, God's dwelling place. You know the word tabernacle means dwelling. God's dwelling place. God tabernacles with us. Look, God's tabernacle is now among the people. Isaiah 54, that great prophecy. Uh, there's going to be a rebuilt Jerusalem, but no temple. Why do we not need a temple? Because God is with us. That's where we're going. And today's, uh, last week's uh, Hebrews chapter 8, and today Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 10, deals with the transition, click. 
between the old way, tabernacle worship, the earthly tabernacle and the old covenant, and we've been transferred, been changed to the heavenly tabernacle as described in Hebrews chapter 8 and the new covenant. And this is a change that those first century Jewish Christians were going through. Now let's have some sympathy with them. This is a huge change. They've been brought up in tabernacle, temple worship. They've been brought up with all the rites and rituals of a religion, a God-given religion. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying, no, you've got something new now. You've got something better in Christ. So have some sympathy with them. This is a big change. It's like us getting rid of a pulpit. It's a big change. It's a struggle. But God is saying, no, I'm moving you on. Thank God for all that's past and trust him for all that is to come. So that's a big picture context of where we are this morning. We're dealing with this transfer, this change from the old covenant, tab, tab, tabernacle and temple worship, to the new covenant, worship in spirit and in truth. Everyone happy with that? That's the big picture um, context. But there's an immediate context as well. Click. Um, yes, so the immediate context, of course, this letter to the Hebrews... Um, you've heard me say this many times before, has been written to first century Jewish Christians who are what? They're differing and they're doubting and they're drifting. They're on the edge of packing up on Christ. They're on the edge of going back to Judaism. They're under huge pressure. They're under priest pressure, peer pressure, parent pressure. They're under the pressure of persecution to go back and be proper Jews again. It's about AD 63, somewhere around there. The temple is still going. It's the only time in history where you've got Christians and temple worship going on at the same time. They're under huge pressure to go back and be Jews again, to go back to the old religion. And the writer comes to them with this letter of Hebrews, which is that powerful piece of persuasion for people to persevere. And he's saying, don't go back. No, you've got to go on with Christ. That's a great message of Hebrews, isn't it? You've got to go on. And he gives them all those arguments. Um, I'm tempted to quote Tina Turner again. Sorry, I just can't help it. Um, he's, it's all about Christ. And he's simply the best. He's better than all the rest. He's better than anyone. Anyone I've ever met. So hold on to his heart. Listen to every word he says. Because he is simply the best. And through this book of the Hebrews, the writer's lying, laying out those arguments. Argument one, he's the best or the better messenger. He's better than the angels, better than the prophets, Hebrews chapter one. He's the best leader. He's better than Moses. He's better than Abraham, chapter three, chapter six. He's the best super supreme high priest, better than all those earthly priests. And fourthly, he brings in the better or the best covenant. That's where we are today, Hebrews 10 and Hebrew nine. And there's going to be one more. He is the only sacrifice that really deals with sin. That's coming in chapters 9 and chapter 10. Great and powerful arguments for these first century Jewish Christians, the immediate context. But very particularly for today, I want you to notice that if you were a first century Jewish Christian, you'd have lived in Jerusalem and the temple would still be working. And you can imagine people coming alongside you, maybe a priest, and saying, you know you seem to have given up coming to the temple. You seem to be uh, following this Nazarene cult. Why don't you come back to the temple? It's far better. Look at it. Magnificent. Covered in gold. All those priests doing all their rites and rituals. This is proper religion. This is the religion of your forefathers. What have you Christians got? 
you're meeting together in each other's houses and you're sharing a bit of bread and a bit of wine. Doesn't compare, does it? This is so much better. Come on, come back and be a proper Jew again. You can see how powerful and seductive that argument might have been. And the writer is saying, no, no, no. And at the end of chapter 8, which is why I asked for the last verse to be read, Hebrews 8, 13, the writer has been a bit prophetic. He says, this is old and obsolete, and it will soon disappear. And if you know your history, you know that God made it disappear. AD 70, uh, the Romans under Titus destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. They stripped all the gold out of the temple and took the gold back to Rome. Uh, did you know that the commodity price of gold in Rome dropped by 50% because so much gold came onto the market from the sack of the temple? Did you know that? Incredible. This was a big event. And um, some people say, well, why, why do the Jews not do sacrifices today? Well, because in AD 90, the Jewish leadership met, and they had a bit of a conference, and they reset the Jewish religion not to need tabernacle or temple worship. So you can see what the writer said at the end of Hebrews 8.13, that's come true. This is old and obsolete, and for us it has disappeared. Nobody engages in tabernacle or temple worship anymore. It's gone. But these first century Jewish Christians, they were in this transition point. The temple is still standing there. And the writer is saying, don't go back to the temple, it's old and obsolete. Stick with the new in Christ. Now here is, a, I, I trust, an amusing anecdote. Click. Uh, some years ago, about 12 in fact, um, I, I took my youngest son, Isaac, Isaac uh, who will be 11 or 12 then, it's his birthday soon, I must remember that, must get a card, mental note. Um, <clears throat> he, I took him down to the Winston Churchill Cabinet War Rooms in London. Anyone been? Yeah, good, thank you. You're allowed to put your hands up if you've been. Um, and uh, it, it, Isaac, uh, sorry, Lydia and Matt must have been off doing uh, more older, older teenage things, and Pauline, I'm sure she must have organised it for us. But anyway, it was an inset day, and I took Isaac down to uh, the War Rooms the war rooms, and we came across something like that. And uh, I caught Isaac staring at it. <laughs> he was just staring at it, and there was a poster next to it that said, dial three to hear Winston Churchill's speech. And he's staring at it, and I, I what's up? He said, well, what do I do? I said, well, you lift the handset. I lift what? The handset. So I lifted the handset off and gave it to him, and he held it like this. He said, well, what does it do? <laughs> I said, no, that's a handset. You put that bit to your ear, and if you were speaking, so he lifted it up here. He said, it's heavy, isn't it? It's heavy. And I said, right, dial three. So he goes. <laughs> Nothing's happening, Dad. No, you've not dialed it. What do you mean I've not dialed it? I'm dialing it all the time. I said, no, you've got to do this. So I put my hand into the hole and pull it down to the stop and let it go. And sure enough, Winston Churchill starts speaking. But Isaac's not interested in that anymore. He's looking at this thing. He says, what a contraption. <laughs> Whoever invented that? Why don't you just use a mobile phone? <laughs> and of course, he's quite right. If they had mobile phones, he would have used it. But World War II, they didn't have mobile phones. That was the best they had. It wasn't old and obsolete then, but it is now. So when we think about the tabernacle and Jewish worship and being set up by God in, by Moses, it wasn't obsolete then. It had a point. It had a purpose. But now it's old and obsolete. We've moved on to something better. And that's what this writer is trying to convince these first century 
Jewish Christians of. Remember the story of the phone, because if I'm right, it'll come up again later in the sermon. So we're all happy with that context. The big picture context, we're at this very important juncture, this change from tabernacle, old covenant worship, to new covenant worship in Christ. Everyone happy with that? I don't know what to say I'd do if you said no, but anyway. <coughs> and uh, we're all happy with the immediate context. It's this point of, point of persuasion to keep on keeping on. Right, that's the uh, context. Now we get stuck into the detail. Are we looking forward to the detail? Because verses um, uh, 1 to 7 of Hebrews 9 is all about the detail of the tabernacle. Lots of lovely detail. In that first, first verse, it says the old covenant had rules and regulations. Boy, did it have rules and regulations. You go and read the books of the law in the Old Testament, and they make our suite of church policies look pretty skinny, I've got to say. It had rules and rights and regulations down to how you put a clip on or how you put a tunic on. It was all specified. Procedures and practices and policies were all laid out for you. And there was no end round the tabernacle worship. So in verses 1 to 7, he gives us some detail of the tabernacle. If you want to do some further homework, Exodus 25 to 30, you get a lot more detail. Uh, there's a kind of picture of the tabernacle. I think that's the Lego tabernacle. Uh, you've got this idea of this courtyard area, and in the courtyard area, there is a tented area. Have you got that? I'm going to take you through a little plan now. Um, I've got a pointer thing. Is that going to work? Yeah, can you see my little... Maybe people with uh, optical problems can't but the little thing. So if you click, please, hopefully I'm just going to draw you a picture of the tabernacle, which will take you through verses 1 to 7. So if you've got a Bible, just eyeball the Bible and make sure I'm telling you right. I'm going to give you a bit of extra detail start with, the tabernacle is five metres high, so twice my height, well a bit more than twice my height, so you can look in, um, <coughs> and there's just one gate, just one way in, which is over, pointer will work there, just in, and as you come through, click, you'll find an altar, a, an altar where animals were burnt, uh, the tabernacle was used for making offerings. There's a whole bunch of offerings. There's fellowship offerings, peace, peace offerings. But the one we're particularly interested in is sin offering. So if you uh, wanted to go and make an offering for your sins, you would take something precious to you like a lamb, and you would uh, go in there and you'd get a priest and you'd lay your hands on the lamb, and you would be imputing your sin to the lamb. And the lamb would then be slain and burnt on the altar. So that's what would happen there. And then after the altar click, there's a laver. And the laver is a big bowl, huge bowl, full of water. And the priests, after making the sacrifices, would wash themselves in the laver before they could go into the tented area. And then we get into the tented area, click, and we've got a table with bread on. It's, they call it the show bread. Uh, this is sacred bread. And there's 12 loaves. Uh, by loaves, think of unleavened bread. Uh, pita bread or, or um, naan bread, uh, and two piles of six. This is the 12 tribes of Israel, a loaf for each one, and it's changed every week by the priest. So there's a table with bread on. Click, and then there's the, the menorah, the seven-stick candlestick, the light that's never allowed to go out. The priests have got to keep the light going all the time. It's an olive oil, olive oil candles, quite difficult to maintain, I imagine. So a lot of work going on there. And in the... Uh, in the first area, the holy place, most of the time, click, 
there's the altar of incense. In Hebrews, it's set up for the Day of Atonement. So that altar of incense is actually on the border between the holy place and then the most holy place. Click, and in the most holy place, which only one man can go into once a year, we have the Ark of the Covenant, an acacia wood box covered in gold. And inside the, uh, inside the Ark, we have the Aaron's rod that budded. If you know your Old Testament, you know that that was how God showed Aaron to be the true priest. His, his rod budded. All the other candidates, their rod did not bud. Um, <coughs> in the uh, Ark of the Covenant, we had a little pot with manna in. Manna collected during the wilderness wanderings. And in the box, we had stone tablets on which the law had been written. And then the box has got a lid on, which uh, is sometimes, depending on which version of the Bible you've got, sometimes called the atonement cover sometimes called the mercy seat. And on the top of the lid are these two cherubims, not delivered by Amazon, <laughs> but the gold statues, cherubim. This is Eden symbolism. This is the cherubim. You remember the cherubim with the flashing swords? This is God saying no entry or restricted entry. There's the cherubim. They're guarding the Ark of the Covenant. And it's said that there was no light needed in there because it was lit by the glory of God. And as Paul reminded us, there was a cloud that hung above the tent to, to demonstrate God's presence with the people. And that's the detail. I think that's verses 1 to 5. And then on the Day of Atonement, we're told that one man, the high priest, could go into the most holy place. Just one day a year, he'd go into the most holy place. But only after following all these rites and rituals. Go and read Leviticus 16 if you want to know about all the rites and rituals. And he actually went in there twice. He went in there once with blood uh, to cover his own sins. Then he comes back out, makes another sacrifice, and goes in with blood to make atonement for the people's sins. So that's the detail. Wow. Why am I telling you all that detail? Why does the writer of the Hebrews give you all that detail? Well, I think you ought to all go away and do a bit of homework. There's loads of stuff on the YouTube demonstrating this. There's loads of images that you can use. And... <coughs> The reason the writer is going into this detail is because in the rest of chapter 9 and chapter 10, he's going to use this imagery to explain the beauty of soteriology and the wonder of Christology. And he uses the imagery of those things, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, Christology, the study of Christ. To understand that great theology, he uses pictures from Old Testament tabernacle. So if you understand that, when we get to the great verse of Hebrews 10, 19, where it says we can boldly approach the throne of God, we can enter the most holy place, you're getting some idea of how wonderful that is because you've done your homework and you understand a bit about tabernacle worship. So this detail is important to us, friends, if you want to fully understand what's coming. Okay, and then we've got verses 8, 9, and 10. And in verses 8, 9, and 10, the writer basically says something about why tabernacle worship was set up. And uh, in, uh, click please. In verse 8. Verse 8. Click. Click. Verse 8, we're shown that the old tabernacle worship is limited. Now if you eyeball verse 8, just for a minute, you think, John, how are you getting there? How are you getting to limited from what it says in verse 8? Well, verse 8 is actually a very confusing verse. And if you're, if you're eyeballing it, it's referencing the most holy place. To understand the verse, we've got to realise that most holy place is in the heavenly tabernacle. 
This is the same as in Hebrews 10, 19. This is our approach to God's throne in heaven. Now, if you, if you take that as the reading, then where it says that the tabernacle stood until the way to the most holy place was revealed, who is the way to the most holy place? Jesus, thank you. Yes, like Sunday school, isn't it? Any question, the answer is either Jesus or God. So, who is the way to the most holy place? Jesus. So the tabernacle is in place until Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, is revealed to us. And we've got this contrast. The old covenant, one man, one day a year, can go into the holy place, into the presence of God. Under the new covenant, the way that has been revealed to us, Christ, we can go anytime, any place, anywhere, in spirit and truth. Can you see? The old covenant is limited. One man, one day a year. The new covenant is unlimited. And you can see the writer's point of persuasion here. First century Jewish Christian, why do you want to go with the limited when you can have the unlimited? Yes? Secondly, verse 9, he tells us the tabernacle was there because it was an illustration. It's a shadow of the great things to come, we're told in Hebrews chapter 10. It's an illustration of what? On how our consciences are going to be cleansed, it says. It's an illustration of forgiveness of sins. Click, let me just show you this very quickly. Click. So the object is access to God, but for us to have access to God, our sins have got to be forgiven, and there's forgiveness in Christ. But just look at the imagery here. Just follow this through. I know it's hot, and I can see some of you are tiring, so please, please, just bear with me, because it's really exciting. Some people overdo this, I won't try and do that. But look, think of Christ. Think of salvation in Christ, in Christ alone. How many gates are there? Come on, get, please, please. How many gates are there? One. One, very good. And what's next? The point of sacrifice. We come to God through one person, Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. How do we come to God? Through his sacrifice on the cross. What happens? The labor. We're cleansed. Our sins are cleansed. Our consciences are sent. We're made right with God. We can now enter into the holy place. Think of the symbolism here. Jesus, bread of life. Jesus, light of the world, the altar of incense. Our worship is made a sweet savour in heaven because of Christ. And then we can go into the most holy place. We can boldly approach the throne of God because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Is that worth a hallelujah? Thank you. This is super exciting, people. This is not a time to fall to sleep. We can go in to the most holy place. We can know the living God through the work of Christ. And the tabernacle is one huge illustration showing us that. Now, if we were first century Jewish Christians, we'd immediately know. We're not, so we've got to understand a bit of the detail. But we can see what the writer's telling us here. It's this illustration. First century Jewish Christian, why do you want to stick with the illustration when you can have the real thing? Why do you want to stay with the shadows when you can have the substance and reality that's in Christ? Obvious, isn't it? You've got to go on. You can't go back. And thirdly, click verse 10. He tells us that the tabernacle was temporary. It was only there for a short period of time. How many years, Paul? 400 and odd, you said? 440 years. And then God was going to do something better. Tabernacle, temple worship, God was going to do something better in Christ. It was just temporary, just for a time. It was useful. It's like the old... Te- oh, like the Old Testament, like the World War II phone. At the time, it was useful, but we've moved on. At the time, the tabernacle, temple worship was useful. It was God-given, but he's moved us on. Thank God that all that's passed and 
trust him for all that is to come. I mean, that's very true for us today as well, isn't it? Some things we've got to let go. Some things we thank God for, but we're moving on. We're at a pivotal moment as a church. Right now, I think God is doing something new amongst us. Can you feel it? Thank you. I can feel it. There's something new going on amongst us. The prayers at life groups are different. They're more spirit-filled. It's wonderful. We've got a new pastor arrived. God is doing something new amongst us. The old's gone. Thank him for it. Let's grasp the new and go forward in faith in God. Yes? The old was temporary. And it was external. As you go on in um, chapter 9, the writer makes this. He goes on about everything being cleansed externally with blood. External this, external that. All the rights and regulations were external. In the new covenant, it's internal. Worship in spirit and truth. God gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit and we can worship him through Christ and the spirit living within us. Temporary and external. Oh, permanent and internal. Which do you want, first century Jewish Christian? I'll go for the uh, permanent and internal, please. So, that's the uh, context, the big picture context, this pivotal moment, the immediate context, the point of persuasion. There's the detail, the picture of the tabernacle, uh, why the tabernacle existed. It's that limited, useful but limited. Now we've got the unlimited. It was an illustration, now we've got the substance. It was temporary, now we've got the permanent. And it was external, We've now got the internal. So that's uh, context and detail. And finally, application. Uh, And I want to do this two bits too. I think I've still got a bit of time left. Two bits too. Um, What was the application for those first century Jewish Christians? I think I've uh, been very clear about that. If you're a first century Jewish Christian, the application of today's message and this passage and uh, Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 9 is don't go back to tabernacle worship. Don't go back to temple worship, but go on. Click, click. Don't go back. Go on. Very clear. Very clear. Very clear. You know, um, when Jesus was crucified, something happened in the temple. What happened to the veil in the temple, the second curtain? What happened? It was torn. Was it torn across the middle? Or up from the bottom to the top? Top to bottom, thank you very much. It was a great illustration that God was tearing down the no-entry sign. Talking about the cherubim and the flashing swords, and God posting a big sign that says, no-entry, sinners not welcome. Well, in Christ, that's been tossed away. And it now says, sinners welcome, in Christ. Wonderful. But... Do you know what the Jewish religious leaders did with that torn uh, veil? It was as thick as a man's hand, by the way. It was a huge bit of uh, fabric. Do you know what they did? Anyone care to venture what they did? They repaired it. Yeah, they sewed it back up again. Now, kind of, that shows how much we kind of like our religion. But God blown out. I remember Andrew Dawson telling me once, it, it wasn't us being allowed in, it was God coming out. Well, either way, it's great. But God had blown it apart. And the religious leaders come along and they sew it back up again. I mean, how mad is that? It's like a a prison being blown open and all the inmates say, oh no, no, we're going to rebuild it and put the bars back in and we're going to sit back in our cells. How crazy is that? But it says something about human nature. We're wedded to a religion. We like religion. And Christianity, friends, is not a religion. It's a relationship with the living God through Christ. So this, uh, the application for the first century Jewish Christians, 
was very simple. Don't go back, go on. Now, I've uh, preached without notes so far, and I want to read the last bit because I want to get this right. Okay, so, <clears throat> for 21st century Stabowite Christians, that's you if you didn't recognise the, the uh, description, what's the application? I think the application is just the same. Don't go back, go on. If we're honest, I want you to be honest with yourself now, if we're honest, we all have our divers, we all have our doubts, and we all drift along. None of us have been converted from first century Judaism. However, we have all been converted from this world. And this world's religions of materialism, materialism celebrity culture, individualism, selfishness, etc. And you know, the world, the flesh, and the devil are not happy. They want you back. And they're going to put pressure on. It might come in the form of peer pressure, or parent pressure, or even priest pressure. And uh, they'll tell you all this Christianity is irrelevant. You don't need it anymore. And they won't come and say, stop going, stop being a Christian. They won't be that unsubtle. It's much, much more subtle than that. It'll be, you know that prayer meeting? Best not go. You've been to enough meetings recently. Or you know that service you're doing? Getting a bit fed. Best stop. It'll be something like that. It'll be lots of little drips to get to the point where you know, I don't think church is any relevance to me anymore. I'm kind of okay, I'm walking my own life, but you're missing out on so much. In fact, you're going back. You're not going on. And the same three points made about the obsolete tabernacle worship can be made about this world too. Listen carefully. It is limited. The goal of life, as enshrined in the American Declaration of Independence, is happiness or the pursuit of happiness. I don't think that is entirely spiritually wrong. It's your definition of happiness which is important. Then this world's approach is limited. We, we can have some great times. There's euphoria, there's hedonism. Um, but that deep down contentment, Jesus uses a particular Greek word in the beginning of the Beatitudes, which is makarios. Deep down contentment can only come from one place, and that is from knowing Jesus as your saviour. So friends, if you're divering and doubting and drifting, why do you want to go back to the limited when you can have the unlimited in Christ? Secondly, um, this world is an illustration. Think about it. Uh, I was walking around Attenborough Nature Reserve. Beautiful. Look around, the beauty of creation. Is that not telling us there's a God in heaven? Think on the things in life everybody holds as precious and Love and compassion, justice, friendship. All these are God-given, are they not? God-given to us and in the world. But without Christ, they're just a pale reflection, just a shadow. Why be satisfied, friends, with a shadow when you can have the substance in Christ? And thirdly, it is temporary. The time is coming, as we're told in chapter 1 of Hebrews, Christ will roll up this world like a coat he's finished with. There will be the second coming and the new heaven and the new earth. And all this will be finished with. So, brother and sister in Christ, the message from Hebrews 9, 1 to 10 is super clear. Super clear. Fix only on Christ. Don't go back, but go on. Don't do less for him. 
Do more. Don't be less committed. Be more committed. Don't enjoy less Christian fellowship. Enjoy more. Don't rest in him less. Rest in him more. Don't divver and doubt and drift in your trust, but ask him for the strength to trust him more. Don't go back, but go on. Whatever your immediate struggles may be, keep on keeping on. May God bless you as you do. In his name. Amen. We're going to uh, finish by singing the anthem of Hebrews before the throne of God. I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Let's stand and sing together. Himself, I cannot.
Well, that was a miracle. I nearly got the note right, didn't I? <laughs> May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.